everyone. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is take 17. <laughs> tried this like three times. Dogs keep barking. The neighbors are selling things for an orchestra at the junior high school. And, oh, man. <laughs> it's just one of those days. We're not going to talk about how I was talking for like two minutes when we tried this with my microphone muted. It, hey, it happens to the best of us. But <sighs> um, hopefully what we had said before on our first take, <laughs> about ten, for 10 minutes we talked about this, hopefully um, we have the sound all kind of straightened out for the better, most yeah. part. We're going to still work on it, but we know our last episode, it was it was it's it's hard to listen to, but I don't want to take it down because people are enjoying it. Yeah, uh, I maybe we can re-record it one day. If you remember we did that episode, we did an episode with Beth. And we used one mic. Yes. So I moved all the mic cords and stuff around the settings. Don't know what we did. And I undid something that I shouldn't have undone. That's why it sounded like poo. (laughs) Although it got like a thousand listens in like a week. So that's pretty cool. We're up to almost 2,000 I took today. It's skyrocketing. It's crazy. So I don't want to take it down. I kind of want to let people listen to it through Halloween. And then maybe we can redo (laughs) it. So if you liked our horribly sounding audio, this one should do better. (laughs) I'll try to fix that one too so we don't have to redo it. But yeah, I mean... Kudos if y'all like it, but thanks for letting us know. We do listen to it, right? We do listen to y'all tell us that it sounds like doo doo, uh, and while we were trying to fix it behind the scenes, and we the, appreciate we the nice the constructive this, criticism. Right? Yeah, no, we take all contri- constri- con- criticism. I was going to say constructive criticism. But, but, uh, we take all criticism, but uh, even bad ones. Even though even though I talk trash when people do it, but we still take it into heart, right? We want to make it. As we want to make it better. We can for y'all. Yeah, um, something you guys can enjoy because you're taking the time in your car ride or. To listen to us, so we want to make this or your workout or whatever it is. And, and to that, you know, we put some work into the research and oh, into all of this, and, and we don't want to, you know, just destroy it with sound. So, yeah, we're gonna definitely keep improving, but hopefully, this is a little better. Should be a lot better. But anyways, let's just hop right into it, because um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lengthier one that I tried to kind of condense, but it's gonna be a doozy. Um, we're getting back to our um, roots. Roots. And going full-on serial killer today. Great, because when you say that, I think of the horrible people we've covered. So, awesome. Yep. Let's do it. This is one of the worstest. So. How is everyone worse than the rest I of know, the I know. I keep one-upping myself. That's, I didn't think it was possible at this point. Anyway. So, on May 10th, 1969, George Montgomery and his young son took a father-son fishing trip off of the Bundy Bridge, which overlooked the Long Tom River in Ohio. Bundy Bridge, no... It's just a coincidence. No correlation with Ted Bundy. All was well. They were just enjoying their bonding time, waiting for a bite, when they noticed the semi-nude body of a woman in the water, partially submerged. Now, the sight of a dead body is shocking enough. However, George and his son noticed that the woman had been the victim of a terrible crime. She was bound tightly with rope and wire and had been tied to an auto transmission, like an engine block, obviously intended to weigh her down. They were, of course, horrified and immediately called the police. The body was later determined to be that of Linda Dawn Saley, a young woman who had been reported missing a few weeks earlier. Around the same time, between three and four girls disappeared, all in close proximity of each other. And police were starting to fear that they had a repeat offender on their hands. The discovery of Linda's body in the river would soon lead police to another gruesome, shocking scene. Just two days later, 
the body of Karen Sprinkler was discovered just 50 feet from where they found Linda. So super close. Yeah, right next to it. To the absolute horror of the investigators, both of Karen's breasts had been cut off. Oh. And she had been dressed in a black bra stuffed with paper towels. And like Linda, Karen had been tied with rope and wire to a car engine. Okay. At this time, serial killers weren't common, so to speak. In fact, the term serial killer, I don't believe, had even been coined yet. Late, so it wasn't the mid to late 70s before I that was coined? I believe so. But after, after the discovery of the second young girl, it was clear that the Long Tom River held many more secrets. And Oregon officials were about to get the shock of their lives. As they were about to come face to face with, in my opinion, one of the most twisted, sick individuals in history, Jerry Brudos. Known by some as the lust killer and the shoe fetish slayer. Okay. Whatever you call him, he will make your skin absolutely crawl. As we get to know him today, which lucky you, right? Yay! He is such a case study, in fact, that John Douglas would repeatedly interview him. And if you're not familiar with Douglas, he's one of the pioneers of the FBI's behavioral analysis unit um, that profiles offenders. Well, they came up with criminal profiling. They're the ones from the show Mindhunters. Exactly. Interviewed Kemper for thousands of hours and all those other guys, the son of Sam and a few others. So without further ado, you guys, let's dive into the case of Jerry Brudos. So let's start off with his early life in just true evil pudding fashion. Jerome Henry Brudos, known as Jerry, almost said lovingly known as lovingly Jerry, known but as no Jerry. one loves him. <laughs> uh, he was born on January 31st, 1939 in Webster, South Dakota, basically in the grips of the Great Depression. Frustrated with the state of affairs in the Midwest, Jerry's dad, Henry moved his family to the Williamette Valley, uh, which is a a region in Oregon between Portland and Eugene, for those that are not familiar, which I'm definitely not. Salem's in there as well. Beautiful area. At the time, jobs were, of course, everywhere, very scarce. So Henry moved his family around that part of Oregon quite a bit in search of steady work. So that meant that Henry was gone quite a bit, leaving Jerry's mom, Eileen, in charge. Now, Eileen, she was something else. She was extremely domineering, definitely wore the pants in the family, and she definitely had a favorite child, which, of course, was not Jerry, but rather his older brother, Larry. Larry and Jerry. Okay. Her beef with Jerry was that he had not been born a girl. And she made that very clear by... Does he have just one brother, no sisters? He has just one brother, and he was a younger one. Well, so she wanted an older... She wanted the boy to be the oldest, and then she wanted to have a younger girl. Right, exactly. Okay. And it is, um, I guess, discussed and thought that some people think, but we're not sure, that she used to dress Jerry up. Uh, as a girl when he was little. Not the first time we've heard that. Yeah, we've heard that before. It's very conjuring. The mom in the, not the conjuring, Insidious, the serial killer's mom. 
very much gives me those vibes. I was getting maybe more like Ed Gein. We talk about Jason. him. Yeah, that too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so many horror movies have these moms that are like this that are blamed almost for creating a monster in some way or, or she didn't help. We'll yeah, put that's it that way. Something. She didn't necessarily create it, but she definitely shouldn't help deter him from it. <laughs> yeah, she didn't raise an upstanding young man. So although she stopped dressing him up as a girl, as when Jerry got older, she still continued to reject him while lavishing her oldest son with love and affection. Jerry, unfortunately, learned at a very young age to despise his mother. In fact, in later interviews, he would refer to her as, quote, selfish, a selfish, stubborn egoist. There is a definite event in Jerry's relationship with his mother that stands out uh, to those psychologist who would later evaluate him and I would like to tell you about that event Patrick one day an adolescent Jerry was out playing around in the dumpster I guess as one does I mean it probably wasn't too many toys going around in the Great Depression so well he found a pair of women's high heels that someone had discarded and he was fascinated with them just like the look of them like not a big deal right okay, whatever so he brought them home and innocently very innocently began just wearing them around the house like do 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 you know probably very depending on how old he was it's probably confusing to see a pair of shoes like that and then you're like how do you walk in these and yeah exactly and his mom used to dress him up like a girl so he just I thought, wonder what it's like to walk around yeah with exactly uh so his mom freaked out despite her desire for her daughter so she demanded that jerry throw them away Well, later on, she found that Jerry had not thrown them away like she asked. He had kept them. So she then threw the shoes into a fire and made Jerry stand there and watch them burn. That's a very strong reaction from his mom. It's very strong. Uh, Harold Schechter, he's a famous true crime author. He would say of this incident in his book, The Serial Killer Files, Quote, one thing is certain, however, he began to manifest the obsession at a startingly, 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 why can't I say that? Startlingly. Startlingly? There we go. There it is. (laughs) Early age. Meaning his sexually driven shoe fetish is what he was talking about. And as a result of his mother's outrage at this behavior, the shoes were given more power than they would have originally had. I think what he's saying, have you remember when like our kids were little and they would come out with a cuss word or a word we didn't want them to say. If we ignored it, the behavior usually would stop. 100%. If we gave it a reaction, negative or positive, which we wouldn't have given it a positive reaction, but if we gave it a negative reaction, they'd be like, hey, I got I got some attention out of this, right? Right. And so that, that's like, what he's saying. It's and 100% I agree with the same. It's 100% that because you think about it, his mom would dress him up as a girl. Right. And he chose to try these shoes on and she freaks out. So only He's when, not getting any attention from her. Only when she wants him to dress up like a girl is it acceptable. Right. And these shoes just became a catalyst because he knew that's how he could make her even more upset. And he wanted that more because he couldn't have it and she took it away from him. So it's, just, right. it's the same principle you're talking about. Well, even being upset too is attention, right? At least it's attention of some sort. Yeah. When he's, he, when he's, he's, he could have been starving just for any attention. That wasn't, yeah, absolutely. Even anger was a different attention that he was getting than the dejection or the nothing. As he grew older and puberty hit, Brutus was faced with more rejection from the opposite sex. You can look at a picture of him. He was not 
handsome. He was not charming. Uh, he was always suffering from weird fungal infections. <laughs> okay. Which I don't even know what to make of that, but there it is. So that's when his shoe fetish indeed would become more sexual in nature. Okay. It's called paraphilia, I believe, where you start to take on um, a, f- a fetish. It's like a sexual interest that can possibly be damaging. Right now, a shoe fetish is not damaging. It grows to be such um, very soon. But Especially at that age. Yeah, it can be very damaging. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Where did this come from? Most psychologists believe that's where it stemmed from. Do would have loved only feet. <laughs> only fans. <laughs> only feet. <laughs> so... Brutus would steal shoes now to hide in his room, and then he would use them in prolonged masturbation sessions. Okay. Still not hurting anybody. So, I mean, it's, it's your thing. No, yeah, but, you know, you give any therapist that, they're going to, red flags are going off everywhere. It definitely needs, yeah, needs to be spoken about. Well, th- his masturbation was so chronic that Eileen, his mom, would make him wash his sheets daily because they could just stand up on their own. Meaning the sheets. Mm-hmm. Disgusting. Gross. Sorry about that. By age 16, the family moved to Corvallis, I think is how you say it, Oregon. Sure. And Brutus began to satiate his urges by stealing the underwear of his teenage girl neighbors from clotheslines. Now we're getting to see. Probably because they had him out hanging on the clothesline. It was easy for him to get to him back then. Yep. Now we're starting to involve some other people, right? Now it's escalating. After stealing one young girl's underwear, she became freaked out that a stranger was stealing her stuff, and she contacted the police, as she should have. Of course, she had no idea who the thief was. Now, by this time, Brutus had been doing this a while, and he was getting bored with stealing women's clothing and masturbating to them. So he decided that this was the perfect opportunity to kick things up a notch. So he called the girl. This is pretty brazen. He called the girl that reported the theft over to his house, and he told her that he was working with the police to find out who the underwear thief is in the neighborhood. And he was going to help her find her missing underwear. All right. Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, it sounds innocent enough. She doesn't know any better. She's also a teenage girl as well. So she's like, okay. So she bought his story, and she came willingly into his house. He excused himself for a moment, and when he returned, Brutus was wearing a mask and wielding a large kitchen knife that he held to her throat. Get this. He then forced her to take off her clothes and proceeded to take several pictures of her as she stood naked in his living room. Then he left, and start, and she started to obviously run away from the house, but he stopped, jumped out, not wearing the mask anymore, and stopped her, and he told the terrified girl that that mystery masked man wasn't him, but it was an intruder who came in and locked him in the barn out back, and he had just now managed to escape. Okay. Whether or not she believed this absolutely asinine story, I I don't see how she could have. I doubt she did. Whether or not she believed him is unclear. However, she did not report the incident. We do know that. So he's he's clearly not like the sharpest tool in the... Definitely shield. not. Definitely well, not. It's not me under the mask. It's somebody else under the mask. 
<laughs> even though we're wearing the same clothes. And the same size. And, and I came back 30 seconds later. But I went all the way out to the barn and got locked in there, and then he managed to come inside and find a kitchen knife. Got it. Got it. Another escalation happened after this incident that apparently left the teenage Brutos feeling quite empowered because he's doing all this stuff and not getting caught. Mm-hmm. One day after school, Brutos offered to give a 17-year-old girl a ride home from school, and she accepted. He then drove her out to a deserted farmhouse and tried to get her to disrobe. When she refused, Jerry became enraged and began beating her viciously. Luckily, a couple witnessed him attacking this poor girl and called the police. Of course, Brutus tried to downplay the assault, but luckily the girl was able to relay to them exactly what happened, and Jerry was arrested. When Corvallis officers later uh, searched Jerry's bedroom after the attack, they found a treasure trove of, for lack of a better word, masturbatory tools to include stolen women's shoes, underwear, and the photographs he had taken of his neighbor, his teenage neighbor. Mm, Okay. So instead of giving Jerry any jail time, officials thought it was best to send him to Oregon State Hospital for some psychiatric help. I mean, get this pat. Now, if you're not familiar with Oregon State Hospital, it was the same facility featured in the movie and book, of course, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm -hmm. Nurse Ratchet? Yeah. You know her? (laughs) So, although that's a fictional movie, the real hospital's environment was not much better. The place is awful. Than portrayed. Every every mental state hospital back in the 30s and 40s and 50s was not like... None none were great, but this one was so bad that it spawned a movie. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) In a book. So you'll not be surprised to know that Jerry Brudos was not reformed nor treated for any underlying mental health conditions. Brudos, this is crazy, but he surprisingly opened up to the hospital staff and told them all of the details of his growing need to escalate himself in sexual aggression. However, the hospital staff felt that this was just a temporary condition and he would eventually, quote, grow out of it. Mm. You'll be fine. You just need to grow up, man up, man up a little. So he basically gave them all the tools they needed, like did everything he was asked. Her. Yeah, at this point, I I think I'm not. Listen, I don't like him. I hate. No, him. but it sounds like he's like okay. I mean, yeah, I do have an issue. I need some help with. I think he, you know, he opened up, and that's the hardest part. You know, opening up. He did that much, and they just they screwed it up. They simply just blamed his vivid fantasies of rape and torture on the hatred of his mother and told him it's merely a phase. Okay. It's just a phase. Just a phase. One psychiatrist would say, and this is a quote from his file, quote, the boy does not appear to be grossly mentally ill. He comes shyly into the interview situation and sits down in dejected fashion to talk with great embarrassment about his difficulty. He would go on to say, quote, there is no evidence of suicide, homicide, or destructive urges, end quote. Spoiler alert, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those cases where we've talked about it before. Like, I would love to go back afterwards and go to the psychiatrist and be like, so there were no evidence of any no of these flash, things. Huh? Nothing here. Not one? Screamed, uh, <laughs> probably not a good idea. Not one. Nothing. Huh? Okay. 
Ultimately, Brutos was diagnosed with borderline schizophrenia. It was always schizophrenia, wasn't it? That was just like a, a garbage can of a diagnosis back then. Yeah, it's a catch-all. Which it may have been, but every one of these guys, like I feel like it back in this early days, it was just all. You well, don't think normally so schizophrenic. Yeah. Basically. So Brutus, he was diagnosed with borderline schizophrenia, and he was sent on his merry way after nine months in the hospital. In fact, he was left with one piece of advice from his doctors. They told him to grow up, Jerry. And that's a quote. And I hate to give away any spoilers, but Jerry did not, in fact, grow up. That's what they teach in college when you're trying to be a psychiatrist. It's, it's like a one-minute class. They just say, just don't grow up. Grow up. Yeah, and you're done. I always say I want to go back to, like, the 50s and become a doctor. <laughs> I would just kill it. No, I'd rather go back to, like, the 20s. What was that show we used to watch? Which one? The doctor one in New York. The Nick. Oh, yeah. The Nick. Oh, my gosh. Knickerbocker. Yeah, they'd be like, let's cut it off. The Knickerbocker. That was so good. Gosh, I forgot about that show. Such a side rant. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I love that, though. That was a great, great show. So, he was now a free man. He barely managed to graduate high school, and he was having lots of trouble finding any work. Don't tell me. So, in 1959, at the age of 20... What did he do, Pat? You can guess. He joined the military. Which branch? You want to guess? Army. Yes, sir. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this part, okay? Okay. For those who are new here, Patrick was in the Army. So yeah. we always joke about how a lot of these guys always join the, the Army. <laughs> not saying all of them, but a lot of them do, don't they? No, if, they don't, if they're not in a life of crime, they're always... Grow up weird. They have trouble graduating high school. They need some structure, I think. They can't find a job, so they end up in the military. Which makes sense. I mean, that's a normal pet shit. That was my path. Well, not... I mean, you weren't still in underwear, I don't think. No, couldn't find a job. Didn't know what to do with my life. (laughs) Need structure. That's that's where I'm going. It's good for people like you, maybe not... Don't worry, Brutus didn't last long enough. I didn't think... They never do. They're always kicked out because, I mean, he got in with psychiatric disorders. You'll get a giggle out of this. After basic training, he was stationed at Fort Ord in California, which I'd never heard of. It's an old closed base. However, now away from home, he began having intense fantasies and delusions that apparently even started to disturb him because he took it upon himself to seek out like help from the Army psychologist on base, a psychologist named Captain Theodore J. Barry. After one visit with Captain Barry, Jerry Brutus was discharged from the army because of his quote bizarre obsessions. <laughs> I would have I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that one hour session. Like, you're good, bro. Just just go on. Yeah, we need to get rid of him. Go ahead and tell me what's going on. All right, buddy. Yeah, just go ahead and back to your unit before he's even back there. They're like paperwork's filed, like he's gone. Exactly. Like, They've never been so quick nope. to do anything in their life. This is like Korea War era, too. Like, <laughs> So, Brutus is back home. He had no choice but to return to live with his parents. And, not surprisingly, his mother did not welcome him back with open arms. In fact, in true Ed Kemper fashion, Eileen Brutus relegated her son to live in their backyard shed. Oh, wow. And this did nothing but enrage Jerry even more, which, of course, in turn caused his aggressions and dark fantasies to escalate. Oh, of course. It's, it's, it's the... Domino effect, escalation. Yeah. It's the gasoline to the fire. According to Jack Rosewood, I used his book primarily for research in this. Great book. Um, 
The book's entitled Jerry Brudos, The True Story of the Shoe Fetish Slayer. Uh, Rosewood said, quote, Brudos attempted to kidnap a woman who was on her way back to work at the telephone company after breaking for lunch. He strangled the woman until she slumped to the sidewalk unconscious, and then he took her shoes. Back at home, he slept with those shoes as a way to feel more powerful through the memories of overpowering the woman who wore them. End quote. So Jerry's just getting more brazen, and we can definitely see where this is going, and it's not anywhere good, and it's on a fast track well, yeah, to his, nowhere good. His hatred from his mom and her domineering is putting him on a place where he needs more and more power over women. That's what it is. And then they add in the sexual fantasies and the sexual... On top of it. Disturbance. For the time being, Jerry is content enough with this level of assault, and he simultaneously is able to give off as a lot of them are, an air of normalcy to some degree. Might not be wholly likable, but, you know, he's, he doesn't stand out by No, they're means. functioning in normal capacities except when they're carrying out their urges. And then they go back to just being normal for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or whatever. He, had, he attended Oregon State University and obtained his FCC license, which I had to look it up, but it's basically a license you need to work on communication, electronics for, like, radio stations mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So he did. Um, he got a job at a local radio station as an engineer, a sound engineer. And that's where he would meet 17-year-old Ralphine Leon. The pair began dating, and pretty early on, Ralphine learned that she was pregnant. And despite her parents' well-guided disapproval of their daughter's new boyfriend, the two decided to marry. Okay. And I know this will not surprise you, but Jerry was... Absolutely the worst husband on the face of the earth. He was, uh, he would force Ralphine to, first of all, he was horribly domineering. Well, he's going to be the way his mom raised him. His, his chance to, that's what he that's thinks his, of a relationship. Yeah, his chance to control a woman. Now. In a relationship, like, that's what he thinks he needs to do. And he would force Ralphine to cook dinner and do housework in the nude, either completely naked or wearing nothing but high heels. Of, of course, course, the shoes were there. And because Ralphine was a very innocent 17-year-old who had no prior relationship to compare this one to, she most likely just thought, this is what husbands can do. You know, and I'm not, we don't know, this is me putting words into her mouth, but I can assume she's like, I don't know what they do. Yeah, it could be a level of fear, you know, or it is that late, that period where, you know, man is the man of the house. Yeah. Woman does what the man says kind of thing. You know I am I mean? man, cooked in her nude. <laughs> yeah. That's what I do in my home before the kids are born kind of thing. I don't know. And what's more, according to Jack Rosewood, um, she was also never to go into Brutus's basement workshop where he kept his stash of underwear and shoes, as well as a cache of X-rated photographs, including some he'd taken of her while she went about doing her business cleaning the house in the nude. And she held to her word, apparently never going into the basement as instructed. And we'll kind of go get back to that towards the end and we can kind of discuss. But, yep. She did what she was told, apparently. Yeah, exactly. She's just doing what she's told, being the good wife. Their daughter, Teresa, was born in 1962. And because Jerry had such a tough time holding down a job... The couple moved up and down the Pacific coastline, just moving around, trying their luck at different places. Mm-hmm. During that time, things were tumultuous in the marriage. But despite high tensions, the couple had another child in 
1967, a son named Brian. And it was around this time that Jerry had started to wear stolen women's underwear and lingerie underneath his clothing. And sometimes he would even walk around the house in women's undergarments in front of Ralphine, just for shock value. Now, I want to be clear. He is not transgender. He is not a cross-dresser. He does this as a fetish, as a a thing of control. Yeah, and a sexual gratification aspect. He's able to control Ralphine's emotions by surprising her wearing women's underwear that she doesn't know where they came from. And she's not even allowed to wear it. This is not him experimenting with his sexuality. And that, that becomes clear in their interviews. Like, this is never a matter. I just don't want anybody to say, well, he's repressing something. Yeah, no, it doesn't even sound like that. It sounds yeah. like he's using it to control, and then he's got a, he's already got a fetish with, you know, women's underwear and Yeah, stuff we're like definitely that. not going to rag on him for, like, just playing. He's doing things to control people. Right. He's stealing things. He's I mean, there's a whole lot doing of it to Ralphine. Yeah. She can't even wear clothes. This now, is he's not walking for him. around. <laughs> She can't even wear clothes in the house. Now he's walking around in other women's underwear that she's like, where the f- did that come from? Yeah, and you also may ask yourself, why in the world didn't she at least question this or view this as a red flag? And the answer is truly, I have no idea. I believe that since he was truly the domineering type, she just kind of put her head down and went about her business and didn't ask questions. That's that's my guess. And they're not new. Well, yeah, and say, this has been... At this point, you're looking at, what, five, six years of marriage of yeah. him treating her that way? She's In a different time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's been pretty much just beat down by this dude at some point. You know what I mean? Where he's been that controlling and that domineering. She's kind of just going to go along with everything. Like I it's, I forgot I put this point uh, next to my notes, but some psychologists who evaluated him later on uh, would believe that doing this, showing up in stolen women's clothes to surprise Ralphine, Gave Bruto sudden sense of being able to control women despite feeling out of control of his own life, not being able to hold, hold down a job, not being able to provide for his family, you know, the that kind of thing. The only thing control at this point is Ralphie. Right. Exactly. But we all know that this isn't going to be enough for him for too long. Uh, so in 1967, that was the case. Wearing panties, silk panties, just was no longer enough. And Brudos went out and found a woman that he found attractive while he was on a bus uh, from Portland, where he was now working as an electrician. He followed her home to her apartment and waited outside until she eventually turned off her lights and went to bed. So he waited outside the apartment until he saw that she was sleeping. He thought that she might be sleeping. Then he broke in and began going through her closet, mainly looking for shoes to steal. Oh, okay. The young woman woke up, and she was startled to see a strange man in her room, of course. As one should be. (laughs) And you're going through my closet? What the fuck? It's just crazy. (laughs) In an effort to hurry and silence her before she could scream, Brutus jumped on top of her and began to strangle her into submission. And then he raped her. So this is his first rape victim that we know of, right? That we know of, right, right. Then he took her shoes, of course, and fled the scene. Now, although this woman survived this horrific attack, the next victim would not be so lucky. 
we always see escalations, even once we get to his actual murder victims. Yeah. They start off one way and then they just get worse. Most of them do after a while. They escalate and get, they take it to another level because it's no longer enough to fulfill that urge, that need. I will give trigger warnings, but I do want to say that I very much tried to skim the surface to give you an idea without going into making this murder porn. We're not here to give you dirty details. Um, but I do want to give you an idea of what each person went through so that you could see an escalation of some degree. We appreciate you bringing the details, but not giving us a snuff film. We don't need a snuff film, do we? We don't want one. Okay. So in 1968, 19 year old Linda Slauson was doing what a lot of people did and making her living going door to door selling encyclopedias. Do you remember door to door encyclopedias? Britannica, man. Yeah. You used to love getting a new one as a kid, too, because all your projects, I think, was the... I love the encyclopedias. I wish our kids had to use encyclopedias Same. They just got to do a project. They just got the Google. They well, wouldn't know I, what to I do. I got a lot of paper on this. We'll go find the <laughs> A book and look it up. Exactly. Well, uh, Linda was the fourth of six children, and she, at the time, was living with her mom, Mildred, and her brothers and sisters in Aloha, Oregon, about 10 miles west of Portland. Linda was working to save up money for college so that one day she could make her own way in this world. And on January 26th, the beautiful young girl's sales route included a stop at a neighborhood in Portland where Jerry Brudos lived. When she got off the bus, she made her way to his neighborhood and immediately saw Jerry outside of his home. Probably just doing some lawn work or something like that. So she walked up to him and Uh, He told her that he was, in fact, interested in purchasing a set of encyclopedias. However, he didn't want to disturb his family who were upstairs, so he suggested that they could go and speak in his basement. That's not creepy. Excited to have a potential sale, Linda readily agreed. Oh, poor girl. She followed him inside, and she was never seen alive again. And unfortunately, the company she worked for didn't keep records of specific stops, and absolutely no one had seen her enter Jerry's home. So once she was reported missing, efforts immediately reached a a halt. Mm. I mean, she could have been anywhere seeing as she was a door-to-door saleswoman, right? So Linda's case, and this is for the time of cell phones and, you know. Yeah, you would think the bus driver would have seen her or something. So Linda's case grew cold. relatively quickly. Later on, thanks to evidence and Brudos himself, police would learn about the horrors that Linda endured at the hands of the psychopath. You ready for this? Not really, but let's go. little trigger warning. He lured her down into the basement. This is a quote, by the way. He lured her down into the basement on the pretense of not wanting to bother the people upstairs, according to Benton County District Attorney David Logan. Logan also said, and once he had her down in the basement, he walked up behind her and hit her over the head with a two-by-four. Now, that blow, although brutal and probably sent her through a loop, it did not kill her immediately. So he then began to strangle her until she died. So he killed her first. Then, get this. He went upstairs, gave his wife some money, and told her to take the kids and go pick up some fast food. Not to get them out of the house, but because he was hungry. He was hungry. Like, um, I just want some food. Okay. While he waited for them to get back, he went back down to the basement. And that's where he was able to act out his sick and twisted fantasies with 
Linda, her body. Mm-hmm. Trigger warning here. I'm, I'm going to kind of skim it, but it's, it's a bit unbearable. Just warning you. Lovely. First, Brutos posed Linda's body in various promiscuous and suggestive positions and dressed her up in different undergarments and shoes in order to take pictures of her. After he finished with that, he went upstairs, had dinner and a beer with his family. Yep. Then went back to the basement and he took liberties with her body. He assaulted her. Then, using a hacksaw, he cut off Linda's left foot and put her shoe back on the amputated foot and stashed it in the freezer that he kept in his basement. Later on, when asked why he chose the left foot, Brutus would respond, because I'm right-handed. Yeah. I'm not going to explain that one. If you don't get it, consider yourself lucky. Yeah. I know. Need a shower after that. Also, he would tell them that he never worried about Ralphine or his children discovering the severed foot in his freezer because they all knew that the basement was completely off limits. Yeah. That night, after... His wife and children had gone to sleep. Brutus loaded Linda's body into the trunk of his car and tied her to an automobile transmission before dumping her carelessly over the Wilsonville Bridge off of Interstate 5, a highway that he used daily to get to work. And I hate to say it, but unfortunately, Linda's body would never be found. So although Brutus is eventually caught, um, they would never be able to bring her family would never be able to bring their daughter back home. And that just adds to the heartbreak of it all, knowing what happened to her and then never be able to get her back. There's no closure. Yeah. No no saying your goodbyes or laying her to rest is what I mean by no closure. So for 10 months, Jerry Brudos rode the high of his first kill. But eventually he needed to do it again. And in his mind, he needed to do it better. On November 26, 1968, 23-year-old Jan Susan Whitney disappeared on her way home from Eugene, Oregon after spending Thanksgiving holiday with a friend. Her red and white Rambler, which is her prized possession, mm-hmm. was found abandoned at a rest area off of Interstate 5, which was along the same route that she would have taken to get back home to her residence and in um McMinnville, I think is how you say it. Same route as he takes. Exactly. To investigators, it seemed as though she must have been having some car trouble. And since this was um, like the hippie era, you know, of free love. Was she missing a transmission? (laughs) No. Mm -mm. Oh, okay. This is kind of the hippie era of people hitchhiking and accepting help from strangers. It wasn't a stretch to think that maybe she had some car trouble and maybe she hitched a ride home with someone. She got a ride home or what? Or to the auto place or something. But she, like Linda, had seemingly just vanished into thin air. Later on, police learned that, yes, Jan had in fact had car trouble and was being helped by two young men when Bruto spotted them on the side of the, of the road on his way home from work, Interstate 5, just like you said. Well, he found Jan attractive, so he stopped and told her that he would fix her car for her. But he had to go to Salem, where he was living, to get some tools. Jan agreed and rode with Brutos back to his house. Now, 
trigger warning here. The whole thing's a trigger warning. Well, no. This is the most brutal attack I've read about, I think, and it's extremely difficult to hear. Okay. So, when he arrived, he told her to wait in the car while he went inside. When he returned, he climbed into the back seat behind Jan. She was in the passenger seat and asked her if she wanted to play a game. Now, this the rules of his game are stupid and creepy, but allegedly Jan agreed. She's trying to be nice, right? Mm-hmm. He's weird, but I'll be nice. She agreed, and she played along. He told her to close her eyes and attempt, without looking, to tie a shoelace, and he gave her a shoelace. Okay. So she was distracted doing that, and Brutos then took a leather postal strap and strangled her from behind. Oh, lovely. He then opened the car door and slammed it so that the strap was fixed tightly around her neck and lodged into the door. And while Jan was dying, he assaulted her there in the car. Ooh. Horrible. Like, oh my gosh. And it's, it's a slow death, yeah. you know, and it's, she can't do anything. Breaks my heart. Well, after he was finished with that, he carried Jan's body back to his workshop, which was now in a detached garage as opposed to the basement. Okay. And like with Linda, he proceeded to dress and pose her like his own little doll. He also photographed her just as he had done with Linda as well. Then, in true Ed Gein fashion, Bruto strung Jan's body up from the ceiling by a meat hook and kept her hanging there for five days. Five days. Assaulting her repeatedly. And this next part's pretty difficult to hear. But as you know from the beginning, he likes this. Um, He sliced off one of her breasts and stuffed it with sawdust before mounting it on a board to display proudly in his workshop. Yeah. What the f... Oh, my Lord. He then attempted to cast it in resin and use it as a paperweight. But he he messed up the ratio of... Like resin mix. He, he, as a paperweight? He wanted to use her breast as a paperweight, cast in resin. So he mixed the resin, but he mixed up the ratio of the mix, and he messed up the whole breast when he submerged it in the prepared resin because it didn't work. Okay. But get this. <laughs> well, it's not I'm so uncomfortable. But get this. While Jan's body was hanging in his garage... Bruto and his family went away for a weekend getaway. She's hanging in the garage. They went on a vacation. While they were gone, like what are the odds? A car lost control and hit Bruto's house. Actually, they hit his garage. Police actually came and investigated the accident. But despite the garage door having a large crack in it, and officers peering through the crack to make sure there was no inside damage, no one noticed a naked woman hanging from the ceiling on a meat hook. Rotting. Or smelled. I was going to say, rotting. The woman. Five-day-old body plus, that's not smelling nice. When Brutus returned home, he realized how lucky he was, or his form of lucky. But what's more is that it gave him an extra confidence boost. Always does. I'm he probably felt absolutely invisible that he didn't get caught. He was they, proud of himself. They all do because they all escalate this stuff. And then there's, there's these super lucky, mm-hmm. like, uh, was it Kemper? 
Yeah, they almost was covered in blood, and he was covered in blood. They almost feel like it's their calling to do this because like they never. Right it's almost like he's being yeah. given permission to yeah, do this because exactly. you keep getting. Well, I never got caught, so I kept doing it. Like, I thought I was done for. It just. It's a very infantile way of thinking. In my, it's very childish. For very sure. childish. Uh, of course, psych- psychopathic, but it's very childish. After he felt he had enough time with Jan's body, he, like with Linda, placed her in the trunk of his car and tossed her body over a bridge into the Williamette River. Four months later, in March of 1969, 19-year-old Oregon State University student Karen Sprinkler was home from spring break and going to meet her mother for lunch in downtown Salem. However, the beautiful and bright young woman would never show up for that lunch date. I figured that was going to be like that. For hours, Karen's mother searched frantically for her daughter, but to no avail. I can't imagine, like, waiting for your daughter to meet you for, for lunch. Never shows up, you know? And that just panic. You, I mean, can't, you know something's wrong. Yeah, especially they're home from college, right? Oh, my God. Um, she waited forever, searched for her. Only defined, and this is scary too, she found her daughter's locked and abandoned car in the store parking lot. Like right next to where they were eating. Her mother quickly reported Karen as a missing person, making it clear to tell them that this was not in her nature to just disappear, right? Right. Still, police waited the requisite 24 hours, <laughs> 24 hours before starting their investigation. While they searched near uh, Karen's car, or when they searched near Karen's car, they found no signs of struggle, no blood, nothing. It was just another young woman that had vanished into thin air, like the other two. It wasn't until later that they would learn that Karen, too, was a victim of the shoe fetish slayer or killer. He had abducted her in the store parking garage using a toy pistol. And had brought her back to his lair, we can call it, where he spent hours forcing poor Karen to pose in various provocative ensembles and taking photographs. He kept her alive for this part. That's new. Yeah, that is new, isn't it? Which, jeez. His methods then took an even more sadistic turn than before. Okay. He wrapped a noose around the terrified young girl's neck and attached it to the ceiling with a hoist, like a winch of sorts, and uh, with hooks on both ends. And that gave him the power to increase tension on the noose at his whim, which is absolutely disgusting. So he tightened it, and he simply left her there alive actively strangling at the end of a rope while he went and had dinner. Of course, he always leaves to go get food. I mean, this is a very... Audacity is like... Like, I know that killing isn't his main goal, right? It's very secondary It's very much torture. But but this takes... This is almost like creatively psycho. And that's not a compliment. This is very dark. And... In the darkest part of a mind, I don't see how people can come up with this. I mean, it's just, and you'll I mean, see t- towards the end. It truly falls under the word medieval when you think of like medieval torture. I mean, yeah, it's sick. It's it scares me that there's people like this that think on this level. That and- think on this level. 
I mean, that's truly terrifying to me. It really is. And we see um, towards the end of this episode, I kind of, he does an interview and I, I give you a quote. And it just, I still think about it to this day. I wrote this episode out a couple of days ago and it just chills me. Lovely. Literal goosebumps. So when he returned back to the garage after he ate, got, got away to eat, yeah. uh, Karen was dead. She died a slow, torturous death. And I'm not trying to be dramatic, but I don't want to take that away from her. She died a horrible death. The slow, suffocating, hanging, any of those are torturous, yeah. He then proceeded to cut off both of her breasts and slipped a bra on her stuffed with toilet paper onto her body in order to soak up any blood. Mm -hmm. He then dressed Karen in a plaid dress and a green sweater, which is what she had been wearing when he... Found her. Oh, he just put her clothes back on her. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he tied her body to an engine block and stuffed her into the back of his car before tossing her off of the Bundy Bridge into the Long Tom River. Karen Sprinkler would be found two months later. For two months, Karen's parents would live in limbo, not knowing where their daughter was, only to learn the horrors that she endured at the hands of an absolute psychopath. And for a second, I just want to, I want you to think about for us hearing this, this is disturbing. Imagine a parent hearing this. This is they don't live in a true crime episode. That no. this is their life, and they're hearing that what their daughter went through. And this is in the 1960s. This isn't after all the years of serial killers that have then since happened in the way the world is. You know what I mean? Yeah, we're we're almost desensitized. Hundred percent at, at this point. I mean, we try not to be obviously here, but. At this, just living in the world today, the you're scariest, gonna be desensitized. The, movie of the time back then was the, the birds or Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock's Pit and the Pendulum. You know what I mean? Like those were considered the scariest movies there were. There was none of the hostels and saws and all these like desensitizing that would desensitize us from things. This like was that. their baby. The, yeah, the brutal movies didn't exist. They yeah. weren't so mainstream. This serial is stuff killers, they probably had never even you know, thought of. The decade of the serial killer hasn't even happened yet. Right. Right. This was very much preliminary. Oh, this is, yeah. So the following month, 22-year-old Linda Saley was out shopping for birthday presents for her boyfriend when she ran into Jerry Brudos. If you remember, we talked about Linda. Mm -hmm. First part of the episode. She was abducted from the Lloyd Shopping Center and had been last seen at around 5.30 p.m. Investigators would later find her bright red VW bug parked on the top floor of the shopping center's parking garage. And like with Karen's abandoned car, it offered zero, zero clues as to the whereabouts of the missing girl. It was later learned that Brudos had approached Karen at the shopping center, donning a fake police badge, and asked her to come down to the station for questioning in regards to a string of recent shoplifting cases at the mall. Um, I just want to pause real quick because this just occurred to me. This this serial killer, I think why he has been fascinating to me, embodies so many of the ones we've already spoken about. We haven't talked about Ed Gein, but obviously there's a lot of similarities here. I, I mean, see a yeah. lot of Ed Kemper, obviously, with the mother. Um, there's a lot of Bundy, too, I'm seeing. A lot of a lot With the necrophilia and with the police badge. Kemper did that as well. There's a lot of Gainesville Ripper. There's a lot of Gainesville with the staging, Ripper. especially yeah. with post-mortem. Yeah, it's it's very odd, isn't it? Anyways, there's no point to that side note. Which but he actually predates almost all of them. He does. 
Of course, instead of taking Linda to the police station, remember he said he was a cop, Brutus brought her to his dungeon where she endured the same torture as his previous victims. Brutus would later speak about how Linda, this is the quote I was telling you about, mm, okay. he would later speak about how Linda pleaded for her life, but he was completely unmoved by her struggles. He would compare her to a, quote, candy wrapper, saying that she was that insignificant to him. Wow. Yeah. Because the police, the interrogators, were asking him, what were you thinking when she was begging for her life? Like, did it not move you? Did it not deter you from continuing, you know? And and he was saying she that just, she uh, was that. Yeah, like she not even, a, she wasn't even a piece of trash to me. Yeah, she was just a piece of Not even trash. a candy in the wrapper. She was just yeah. the trash that covered it. Oof. It's terrifying that there are people like that. This time, he didn't take a trophy with him from his victim. Um, he did not amputate her breasts. When asked why, he, d- he said that he didn't like the look of them. Oh. Disgusting. <laughs> it's just a pig did want, amongst did pigs. Did he his model for his paperweight collection? Yeah. Well. I mean, I'm making a really awkward attentive humor because it's so In real life, this beautiful girl would have never given that loser, ugly, pig the time of day and he, i mean just to think that he has the balls to be like yeah her bibs weren't good enough for me it's well, that's, just, ugh, that's him exerting his power and also like you said his disdain for like what she was she was trash she was just garbage absolutely as ne- when it's not needed anymore this is positive question mark linda saley's body um she was a body that we talked about the first part of the episode when she was discovered um, in the Long Tom River, the discovery of her body led to the discovery of Karen's body. Right. So, and really d- put them on the path of the serial killer. So, yeah, I mean, that's good came from good. Her. Can, nothing good came from it. It was just pure. I mean, we can only look for bright spots here, right? That he was dumb enough to dump them in the same place. And the discovery of two bodies was investigators' first alert that hey, we got a serial killer on our Adam, hands. Right? Yeah. Both tied to some engine engine piece to be submerged. Obviously linked. Very similar. It's very, very specific. So they have like a crime scene, so to speak, which is the water. The watery graves, right? Fantastic crime scene, by the way. The yeah. Holds zero evidence. Well, the wire, rope, and auto parts from Linda and Karen's remains were all sent off to the state crime lab for examination. Yep. And there it was determined, this is interesting, that the wire had been tied in knots known as underwriter's knots uh, used by electricians so that they can run wiring through walls. Okay. I looked it up. It's actually kind of cool. Not that he used it, but I had to look up what all that was. And it's so they can, it keeps the wire stiff and kind of in place so they can thread it. But to me, that's about the only thing you're going to get out of that. Well, hey, we evidence. could be looking for an electrician, right? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's about the only piece of evidence coming, like, otherwise you're just looking at wire, like, who sells this wire? Right, exactly. Everyone. Exactly. So, it was a lead. Not much, but it's something, right? It's something. It's, it's a limited amount of people that are going to know how to use that kind of knot. But another exciting lead came when detectives widened their search to nearby Oregon State University, and they did that because Karen Sprinkler had been a student there, and right. they thought, hmm. Why not? Let's, let's, let's give this a go. see what happens. Yeah. 
There, investigators learned that a pudgy, red-headed man had been seen hanging around on campus trying to get some of the girls to go on dates with him. Do you want to know who is a pudgy, red-headed man? I'm, I'm going to go with... Brutus. Yeah. And what's even more scary, this individual was said to have attempted to force a couple of OSU students into his vehicle. So he was even brazen enough to be... He didn't give two shit. He didn't. He thought he was invincible. Why should he? Police were able to find one girl who had met him, and she was able to give them the man's name, Jerry. Yes, he was dumb enough to use his real name. I mean, we're glad he was. Don't get me wrong. He's not a smart man. He's not a smart man. But he would give his real name publicly. I know. That's just baffling to me. Okay. Well... And this part. Either he's dumb or he was, like we said, he just is that brazen that he doesn't matter. I don't think he's too smart. Detectives were able to persuade this poor girl to go on a date with the elusive Jerry. And she agreed against her better nature. Bro, either she had charges that she was trying to get dropped or they were paying her. Like, I, Yeah, my next note was, this girl's a national hero in my opinion because you would have to drug me to go on a date with this guy. They probably paid her good <laughs> as like a... Because you can pay witnesses and stuff. Okay, I'll do it, but I never want to get pulled over for speeding again. (laughs) Let me rephrase that. You cannot pay witnesses. You can pay UCs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not witnesses. That's illegal. But I'd be like, I'll do this, but I don't ever want a parking ticket. (laughs) Bitch, if I come down the street drunk swerving at 3 a.m., y'all going to be like, hey, and let me go. (laughs) But anyway, she agreed. I'm glad she did. She agreed. She did the right thing. And, of course, Jerry agreed to the date. He's like, hell yeah, no one's ever wanted to go on a date. yes. <laughs> and when Bruto showed up to meet, he was instead met by officers. I'm glad she didn't have to sit there and endure. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't make her, like, go on the date. She just had to set it up and, like, yeah. be present for him to get arrested. And it was then that police learned the name of their first and only suspect in the serial killings, Jerome Henry Brutus. A quick look into his past showed a history of assault, as well as his stint at the Oregon State Hospital. But he had no signs of violence or sexual trauma. Or no, he was fine. He just needed to, to grow up. Needed to grow up. So the puzzle pieces were starting to come together. Yeah, they're looking at his background, going, "Oh shit!" Like <laughs> investigators went to search Jerry's home oh, <laughs> on May 29th, and lo and behold. He lived in the same neighborhood where Linda Slauson was thought to have been selling encyclopedias on the day of her disappearance. Disappearance? Disappearance. And only blocks away from the department store where Karen Sprinkler vanished. Detectives asked to see Brutus's garage. And he was like, yeah, sure. He was totally calm and comfortable. He was like, yeah, sure. And that's where they noticed rope tied with the same electrician knots as well as scraps of wire matching the wire that was used to tie the girls to the engine box and you know matched. as they're putting this all together somebody in the department is probably like hey isn't that where that car hit the house who went who's Je- steve slowly but steve, surely you, the one that went out you know steve's in the back of the precinct with his yeah. head down like steve I, you're fired I, I don't know what y'all talking about i can go out there I, turn in your back you know your gun <laughs> steve um get this this is this just shows how what a cocky SOB is. So Brutus told the investigator, the detective who was there, he was like, you seem to really like that wire and that rope. You want me to cut you off a piece so you can take it? 
And the detective was like, yeah, if you don't mind. And he did. He's like totally chill about it. Just here. I mean, if you're interested in it, dude, here, take it. It's not like you can match it to... Jeez. You can't really. It's probably just a piece of wire. So investigators had a whole cache of incriminating evidence, both from the garage as well as the river. Uh-huh. But it was none of... Well, I mean, of course, that helped, of course. But it was a 12-year-old girl who would provide the final nail in Jerry's coffin. Gloria Smith was a 12-year-old girl that Brudos had attempted to abduct some time ago. Oh. Luckily, she had escaped to a neighbor's house before reporting the incident. Thank God she reported it. Investigators figured that she must have been an intended victim of the shoe fetish killer. So they went and presented Gloria a photo lineup, and lo and behold... She was able to pick out Brutos from the lineup as the man who attempted to abduct her. She's like, yeah, that pudgy redheaded dude. Exactly. Police then arrested Brutos on May 30th, 1969. He and his wife, Ralphine Patrick, they were driving toward the Canadian border. I guess we can guess what they were doing. His poor wife is probably like, why the fuck are we going to Canada? Yeah. He's like, oh, we're just going. And she's like, okay. The arresting officer, Officer Stovall, would later state that Brutos was all, all, also carrying a gun and said that when we arrested him, he was wearing ladies' silk panties. When asked why, Brutos said because they felt more comfortable. Okie dokie. In custody, Jerry first tried to follow his lawyer's advice and stay silent. Nah, he's too egotistical. Exactly. You knew that didn't last long. No, and it he's going to claim his shit. He couldn't wait to sing. Yeah. Being like a canary. He's like all those other ones that are like, no, I did this shit. This is how I, like, they're, they're proud of their accomplishments. Brutus just couldn't help himself. He was so anxious. He rambled out every single detail of his grisly crime starting from day one. That's how we have so much detail of his crimes. Yeah. His, and it also matched the evidence, of course. Um, his first, and he told the story from Linda Slauson in Portland on. Like, he didn't hold back. As he provided more details of his crimes, he became more and more excited, if you know what I mean. Oh, gross. Yeah. And that, I'll just leave it there. But it it disturbed interrogators tremendously. They were disgusted. Yeah, I'd be disgusted if I'm interrogating a murderer and he gets an erection talking about his murders. For some reason, even though he was totally honest and open with investigators about his crimes, this is a bit confusing to me. He didn't want them to ever obtain the photos of his victims or other belongings he had of theirs. No, that was his... He wanted, yeah, I and, and I have this next in my notes. You're 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 picking up what I'm putting down because I was I said I, I guess he wanted to keep those for himself. They're all all of them. It belongs to him. Those they are belong his to him. Trophies. Those are his reminders. Even if the yeah. butcher baker, all these other guys had these treasure troves of every attack because that was what it was theirs. It was still their power over the victim, whatever you want to psychologically put it as. But it was their trophies. So while in prison, he called his wife and he said, look, burn everything. Go and burn everything. Uh, no. <laughs> and luckily, she didn't listen to him this time. She burned like a few things and left a bunch more, for, I think just in case he got out, and left a bunch more for investigators 
Yeah. Investigate. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> like that's, that looks kind of sus that she burned at least some stuff. But investigators believe that Ralphine truly did not know what her husband did in the garage in his spare time. No. In fact, um, she even went to trial after her husband's arrest because people were thinking, how she's could you it. not yeah, know? She's in on it. How she's could covering you not it, know? protecting him. She's luring the girl something. But a jury found her completely innocent, uh, having nothing to do with her husband's crimes. Um, they had witnesses. Their children testified. They're, they truly believed, and investigators do as well, that she was just in the dark. And their oldest child's seven when he gets arrested. So she's maybe eight at the trial, maybe nine. That's right. I didn't think about that. In the end, Brutos would be charged with uh, first-degree murders of Karen Sprinkler, Jan Whitney, and Linda Saley. He would receive three consecutive life terms in prison at Oregon State Penn. He would later go on to become the FBI's behavioral science unit's poster boy, kind of patient zero, um, for their first ever studied lust killer, Pat, which, in their opinion, is one step above a serial murder. So you have a serial killer. Sexually driven serial killer. You have a serial killer, and then you have a lust killer, and that's like worst of the worst, right? Since torture is involved. Mm -hmm. So that was officially right there was Jerry's one and only contribution to society. Is it kind of... He was one of, he was one of the first... It helped us kind of find... Mm-hmm, how to pinpoint other ones, right? And on a happier note, I'm proud... Bless you, Coconut. I'm proud to say that Brudos did not do well in prison. Okay. In 1970, on New Year's Day, Jerry was treated at the prison's infirmary for rectal bleeding. Sounds about right. A cause for the bleeding was never given, but we can only hope that someone rang in the New Year with him in the manner that he so deserved. Yeah, and this is back in that time, too. That was something you just didn't do to people. A woman, so prison, yeah, prison has their own code. law code. Yeah, this weird code where anybody that hurts children, women or children, yeah. Women, cops, there's this weird code that, especially back then, you know, I don't know how. I think it's still to this day. Well, I mean, back then, I was going to say, I don't know how prevalent rapists were in prison back then. It was mostly like drugs and murders and assaults. But when you hurt women and children, you got special attention. You got special attention. You still get special attention for hurting children. I don't know why this happened, but in 1978, eight years later, Brutus was attacked again, this time stabbed several times in the back. However, he would survive this attack. You don't know that he was never not attack between those times. Yeah, oh, probably. It just wasn't. It's not going to be a six-year period before they do it again. They're probably just... Learned their lesson the first time, so they didn't ask questions. And two, it might not have been reported because nobody cares if Brutus is uncomfortable in prison. Yeah, but if they savagely attacked him the first time, mm-hmm. you know, prisoners are smart. They're going to be like, all right, so we take a little easier next time. We're just going to make your life hell. Yeah. We're still going to, you know, torture you in ways, but not enough to get you sent to the hospital. Brutus made attempt after attempt after attempt at a parole at another hearing. <laughs> um, the last attempt made Patrick at parole was in 2005. Yeah, like he would not give up. Um, but luckily that was denied. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be denied. <laughs> On Tuesday, March 28th, 2006, Brutos died in his bed around 5 a.m. after a battle with liver cancer, which, as horrible as it is, it's far more humane death than he afforded any of his victims. It is, and it's, it is one of those rare and opportune times that I would ever tell you good for cancer. Cancer is one of the most freaking horrific things that's ever walked the fucking planet. I couldn't mm-hmm. think of a better person to hopefully suffer long-term 
terminal cancer mm-hmm. than, a, than a man like that. And and this this is one of those cases that because I always told you that like my argument against the death penalty. This is a prime example. hundred percent. Because I'm glad he didn't get the death penalty. Because look what at his stint in prison. There's no better punishment than this time in prison. I mean, he was he was he was clearly bl- brutally prison raped. Yeah. Either by a person or by an object. Mm-hmm. He was stabbed, and then he was left to rot with cancer in the late stages of his life. Yep. Never saw the outside world again. No hope. Couldn't have happened to a better person. I'm with you. I think I like the death penalty, the eye for an eye, but some people I think it's too good for. Oh yeah, and this is one of those cases. Bundy was one of those cases. There's a bunch of other ones that have been given the death penalty that were like, no, they should have just rotted in a hole. You know, I guess I think that Bundy it wasn't horrible for because he was so scared of death. Remember how terrified he was of it? He's one of those yeah, yeah maybe those he's, people he's where ones. it's like but there's a lot of them. Whatever they truly want, we need to give them the opposite, like the real bad ones. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense with him. You're right. Bundy was terrified of death. He was so terrified death of it. The worst thing you could do to him. But there's a lot of them that were like they wanted. They mm-hmm. a lot of them pled guilty to get the death penalty, so they didn't have to deal with all their stuff. Exactly, and it's those people that those are the ones you'd be like, need yeah, to suffer. that's off the table. Exactly. So whatever they don't want, find out like from a psychologist what they really are terrified of, and give them that. But and sadly, a lot of those cases and a lot of those times. Prisons are run like a business. Mm-hmm. It is cheaper to put someone to death. It's actually than more to house ex- them for sixty yes, years. It's more expensive. Not anymore. It used to be. Now it's cheap. I have to look that up because I was always under the impression that it was more expensive um, to execute. Pretty sure that's a. Con- I'm pretty sure that's a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure some of the older forms, like electric chair and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of the way it's done now. It's like a shot. Mm-hmm. It's t- technically two shots. Yeah. And you're done. End of story. I have to look that up because I'm going in blind here. I just heard something one day and I'm spouting it off like fact and that's not. You know, even if it costs $3,000 a year to house someone for 60 years, you're looking at $200,000. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me that shot and the doctor on, on site doing it costs $200,000 every time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to argue. I'm, I'm not sure. how much it costs the prison system. To oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we don't know because we haven't looked it up. I haven't researched it yet. Be good, that'd be an interesting thing to look up, though. Good episode. Death penalty versus life. Uh, maybe I just I think that's more of a debate than a than what we do. Ooh, let's debate. <laughs> I'm not a good debater. But you always win. You kidding. get mad at me and I give in. <laughs> no, I feel like <laughs> I give in because you get mad, <laughs> or I get just tired. I'm like, you okay. just get bored of it, and you're like, I'm done. I just move on quick. I'm like, I'm. Sick. And I stay with it. Like, no, <laughs> no. But my I'm point, hungry. My point is right. But I'm hungry. Anyways, um, thank y'all so much for joining us for this horrific episode. But I knew that this would be right up most of y'all's alley who listen to us. Cordy brings us good times and cheers to brighten our days with. Sleep time. That was a that was a sick but crazy episode that I didn't know really anything about. So that's awesome. Oh well, I've heard, I've heard the name. I forgot to ask you if you'd heard about him. Well, I have. I've heard the name. I've heard you know his nicknames. I've watched Mindhunters and stuff, and I know enough about you know the behavioral science unit that you know we've talked about it. We've watched a lot of stuff about it. I've heard his name come up. I knew he was one of their OG cases, like Kemper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew they did a ton of studies on him, and I could I couldn't remember who he was and a lot of stuff with it. I knew yeah. they talked about him. I couldn't remember that he was their, you know, lust killer archetype. Patient zero. Yeah. Well, now I know. Now I know why. I still have one question. Mm. Really, two that kind of go hand in hand that bugs me. Okay. How strong is this dude? 
I don't think he's he's just short and pudgy. He's because not he's strong. throwing women tied to. That was actually the police. They were auto transmissions and engine blocks. I left that part out because I didn't think that it would be. I wanted to condense, yeah. but that was one thing that detectives said. How in the world did this little guy? I'm not sure if he was tall. I don't think he was tall. But right, he was not about, a strong man. We're talking about even if he doesn't time he together. He's very unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, but even if he doesn't time together um, in the car, he's got to get him out of the trunk separately or together. Well. And then get him into the into Yeah, the to get him out because I know that he did most of, like. His prep work at home. Prep work at home. But I don't want to get into it too much. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a chore. Secondly, where is he just coming up with autom- engine blocks and transmissions from? Yeah, he's an electrician. Maybe he has junkyard. Um, That's the only thing I can think of is he just goes to the junkyard and buys one. Well, yeah, so he probably goes there and, you know, does some junking anyways. I mean, you can go to a pick and pull like here work. and go pull a piece of off a car and just pay for it. But yeah, because all of their still, it's really engines weird. were intact. He didn't steal the girls because that could. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He didn't. That's what was so confusing. He just has engine blocks and transmissions lying around. Mm-hmm. And they're not. I don't know if you've ever attempted in your life to pick up an engine block Never. or a transmission. Never. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know what a, the engine of a 60, maybe a transmission was like back in the day. I don't know, but. I know nowadays they weigh hundreds of pounds. Yeah. If not thousands when you're talking about the engine block. Yeah. No. no. He's not wheeling a crane out there to lift it like you would out of a car. I mean, I could guess. Now, they may be parts of the engine block, and they just called it that through over the years. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could have been like an intake manifold or the headers or something that's smaller, light enough to move around by a person, but heavy enough to weigh something down with. Yeah, just part of it because... I'm sitting here. There's thinking, no way he tied a whole engine block to each one of these 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 victims. Yeah, because he's not disposed of them. I don't know if he's tall or what his height was, but he was not a healthy man. If yeah. you see a picture of I mean, him, I don't think Kemper could do that with and his size. And Kemper's six, investigators five, six, were like, "How is he able to do this?" At first, they were like, "Did he have an accomplice or something?" Because no. Well, I mean, there's just it's crazy. No, I'm, but but that's did. the only thing that's kept bugging to me. It kept sticking out. Like, what the hell? Yeah. How's he even doing this? But hey. It happened. Craziness. Okay, guys. Well, we will see you week after next with another disturbing episode. We love you so much. Be good to each other.